The Rights to Ricky Sanchez podcast is presented by DraftKings Sportsbook. Sign up for DraftKings Sportsbook. Use promo code RTRS when you download their top-rated app. And brought to you by Cornblow and Cornblow, the official law firm of the process, as well as Stateside Urban Crowd Vodka, the official sponsor of the Corner 3 newsletter with Zoe, statesidevodka.com. On the show today, we welcome, boy, a, a guy from Philly, one of our own, but comes from enemy territory, Celtics assistant coach Jerome Allen joins us. Jerome has a new book called When the Alphabet Comes. Uh, Jerome, of course, went to, uh, was a, a just all Ivy League player at Penn, coached Penn. Uh, I spent a year in high school. Uh, he was a senior. I was a freshman at Episcopal with Jerome. And we talked to him about everything, right? Talked to him about Brad Stevens, talked to him about him pleading guilty to wire fraud when he was at Penn. Um, yeah. You know, and there's like a he does it really artfully in the book that we didn't quite get through all of it. Um, yeah, yeah, because the book is is very good. Um, but it's, it's a really um, impressive story and a well told story. Yeah, and he uh, the the interview is great. I I really recommend the book. It's an easy read and an interesting read. And just the honestly to me the fact that this happened only a few years ago really. Yeah, and so it, recent. And and he's coming out and saying this is this is when I saw that the book came out I was like I can't believe it. I remember when the story came out and I was like as somebody who knew him I was like oh. I couldn't believe it, right? Um, and then when I saw that the book came out, it seemed to me, oh, that's what Jerome would do. So it's a great book, um, and it's a good chat. So we thank uh, Jerome for coming on. Um, I mentioned the Corner 3 newsletter. It comes out Thursday. We have something very special coming with Stateside very, very soon uh, in time for the draft. When I went over there to talk about it, Mike, look at this. Look at what they gave me. I don't know if you can see it. They gave me, wow. a, yeah. They gave me a vote stateside lawn sign um, because, sure. yeah, they, there's no one that's gonna get mad at you for a vote stateside lawn sign. So, uh, uh, stateside Urban Craft vodka distilled seven times, gluten free. Um, you can get the 1.75 liter uh, Magnum bottle right now, and just like. But to me, there's there's great vodka, good vodka, and bad vodka, and Stateside is great, um, and made right here in Philly. Go to Stateside.com. You can get it in all um, wine and spirit stores. Somebody sent us it's in liquor stores in Delaware and Jersey. It'll soon be available in 38 states, and you can get it delivered at Stateside.com if you're in Philly. So Stateside, StatesideVodka.com. And uh, a quick voting PSA, mm-hmm. so now that you mention it. Um, because we are less than two weeks out until the election. You can go to, if you're in Pennsylvania, you can go to IWillVote.com slash PA. There are early voting options. There's a lot of them uh, around the city, around the area, uh, to just go and either vote early or and, and bring your ballot with you so you can turn it in, um, or uh, ballot drop-off places where you can just drop it off. Um, there's a ruling today that said, like, the, or a couple of days ago that the Supreme Court like basically tied on whether they'll count ballots postmarked postmarked by election day. So don't don't worry about that, you know? Don't worry about don't wait till election Just day. Just get it in. Either vote in person early or on election day, or if you if you're dropping off your ballot, get it in now. Don't wait. Do not wait. Send the ballot, drop off the ballot. I will slash PA. Thank you very much. I know in Delco, it's funny, they had one voting drop-off box, and then the other day, 32 of them. So now there's 32 drop-off yeah. boxes in it's Delco. It's super easy to, there's just, a bunch that are, it's very easy to find. 
the fucking internet, man. Just look Come on, on the internet. Yep. You got it. Look on the internet. Uh, without any further ado, Amos and the show. Ricky Sanchez podcast. I'm Spike Eskin, along with a guy who must have conflicted feelings that we are bringing a an actual Celtic onto the pod. That is Mike Levin. Jerome was great. Philly guy. He's he's a uh, delightful guy. Um, says a couple nice stories about the Celtics, which I you know yeah gritted my teeth through. <laughs> but uh, you know it's he's good. A, I I wish that they didn't uh, whip our ass so bad all the time. Here it is. Here's our chat with Jerome. We can just get going if if you're ready. We're ready. It's it's up to uh, you guys. I, I'm uh, yeah. I'm just happy to be here. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't we uh, Why don't we get going? So uh, wow, the Celtics guy really come showing up in an Eagles hat, hat yeah. as if that's gonna do, warm us up. Here. Yeah. <laughs> as a method to my madness. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, as I mentioned uh, before, uh, Jerome has a new book out called When the Alphabet Comes. Very proud of you for writing a book. Um, Thank you. Also, coached Penn, uh, played for Penn, uh, the, uh, just uh, an all-interact player at the Episcopal Academy when I first met Jerome. EPI. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so, the way I remember it is you, you were senior when I was a freshman. And every freshman got assigned like a senior buddy that was supposed to show him the ropes or whatever. Mm. So I got assigned you, but you did not show me any ropes, if I remember. <laughs> if I remember correctly. Yeah, your memory probably serves you correct. <laughs> yeah. um, and Jerome, uh, of course, a, an assistant coach now for the for the Boston Celtics. Like, look, I feel like we have to get this out of the way right at the top, right? Obviously, you grew up in Philadelphia. You mentioned in the book, like, Nick Foles, you believe, is the greatest quarterback of all time, true Philadelphian. Is, is there any—I mean, I think I know the real answer to this, but when you accept a job with the Boston Celtics, is there anything in your gut that goes, oh, wait a minute, I'm from Philadelphia? Yes, yes. So uh, on, when I interviewed for the job, I was meeting with Danny Ainge, and I said, uh, if you would have asked me when I was 10, year, 10 years old, um, if I wanted to work for the Celtics, I would have said no, right? He did not crack a smile. Like he did not, he did not <laughs> like my joke. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I understand, I get it. Cedric Maxwell and I always go back and forth about the, the rivalry and, and the uh, late 70s, uh, early 80s. And 
he got into a fight at the Spectrum where there was a fan on the front row on the baseline. And uh, he stumbled into the to the crowd after hitting Andrew Tony with the elbow. And uh, the older gentleman, probably in Europe, maybe 70, 75, he gets to like shouting at Cedric Maxwell. And Cedric Maxwell hauls off him punches him dead in the jaw and then he says to me yeah that's what i do to philly guys i said how can you count that as a win the man was 75 so yeah but i get it It, you've been you've been there for since 2015 right in boston five years correct um in that time the sixers have fallen to boston quite a bit do you have mixed feelings about that when when they're not when you're not when the Celtics aren't playing the Sixers? Do you root for the Sixers or is it just like I got one team? This is my job. Like I, I'm with these guys now. I, I'm not sure if you're gonna like my 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 answer, and, and I'm trying to get off to a good start with you guys. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but uh, nah, like I, I have no no sympathy for them. Um, yeah, it's it would be not only unprofessional of me, but trust me, I've I've been through enough over the past three years um, and and I got a chance to see like what this organization is truly about you know whether I, I work for the Celtics next year or not I'll, I'll be a lifelong Celtics fan you know just because of how that organization kind of wrapped their arms around me and so uh, yeah you know if I if I didn't work for the Celtics I, I would be somewhat rooting for for uh, the Sixers you know because I'm a Philadelphia guy but during while I'm here, like I, it's not even like an issue with me. Like I, if I was playing against my mother, I would try to rip her head off. So, <laughs> so they would definitely get it as well. Yeah, you said that the Celtics wrapped their arms around you. The Sixers sort of wrapped their arms around uh, other people's throats and then blame them uh, for their problems. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's a, the loyalty doesn't really run that deep in the organization. I can't comment on that. But. Yeah, yeah, I know yeah, it's yeah, fine. Yeah. You could just you could just let me let me run with it. Sure. We're Sixers fans, but we're also like not really. Sixers yeah, fans. we. Like, hate that's them the way point. things have gone. Yeah. Like it's this is what it is. Now. I, I understand it. I, I mean, not to try to take up too much of your time, but no, uh, you have Spike, all the time in the world. So Spike, so Sam and my cousin Terry came to uh, a game during the, uh, uh, I want to say it was 2017 uh, playoffs, maybe. So they came, we had played the Sixers. It was um, opening first game of that uh, series. And uh, they got to the arena early and he had his, uh, and Beeb jersey on, and my other cousin had uh, his Iverson jersey on, and you know pregame shooting, um, you know they're down on the floor and they're out there with me, and yeah, and they walk into the arena after I went and got them. Um, this is around like four o'clock. You know they scream, trust the process, clapping and all that, <laughs> and there's no one in there outside of the, the players, and they're you know it's empty. And they just thought it was it was great that they were showing off their Sixers fans. <laughs> but when it was time to throw the ball up in the air, and, and I gave them their, their tickets where they were sitting at, I put them all the way up in the nosebleeds. <laughs> so, so uh, Sam, who is uh, you smoke uh, as as everybody knows him, ended up being a really close friend of mine. Was in my class and um, is the most entertaining 
person I've ever known in my entire life. And we'll have dinner, me and Aranda and, and Mark, Miraglia, we'll have dinner like once every year or two. And I just see him and I'm like, you are the same smoke. Like, I will ask you if you want to come to dinner and I don't hear from you for two weeks. And then we all bet whether you're going to show up at dinner or not. Like yeah. nothing, nothing has changed. He's the same dude. That is, that is smoke. Yeah, it is. Um, well, you mentioned, I, I, there's so many things we want to talk to you about. Do you mind if we bounce all around? Cause like, there's so many things from the book and then there's so many basketball things, like so many NBA mm-hmm. things. You mind if we just bounce around? Because you said something that, that, that reminded me of a question. Uh, I'm happy to be here. I mean, this okay. is, this is y'all show. I'm just, uh, I'm just here. So, you know, feel free to, you know, pull me along. Well, you, you mentioned, all right. So the, um, the book is really interesting because somebody who went through what you went through and you ended up pleading guilty to accepting a, a bribe at, when you were the coach at Penn um, for somebody who wanted to get their son into the school. And the book basically follows you through growing up, but also the last few years of you, you know, coming to like dealing with that reality. That's why it's called a life change by exposure. You, the, you're part of you exposed. Correct. And you mentioned the Celtics, um, the organization wrapping their arms around you. And you also talked a lot about your children and your wife and how they dealt with all of this. And I compared that to a story you told early in the book about your father, who was Mm -hmm. a a drug addict. And uh, before a big game against Harvard, somebody found him outside basically begging for money like while you were excited to see him and and you were very angry at him and i i wonder if you've had time and you do talk about in the book but time to think about the way that the people close to you dealt with your exposure and then the way that you dealt with your father's exposure then and it you know and and how you sort of reconcile all of that correct um yeah that's it's kind of funny so my dad actually just read the book right uh Mm -hmm. say um, about two weeks ago. And, um, yeah, I, I wasn't sure, you know, how he was going to react to me just kind of being transparent. Right. And, 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 and just for lack of a better way of saying it really just, you know, taking off the mask. Um, but going through the exercise and writing a book, I just felt like that it was important that I undress myself and, and not really like create something that just was either one-sided, right? Or try to depict myself in this, and I hate to use you know this word because it's not, it wasn't a redemptive exercise, but try to paint myself into this position of, aha, I got it, I understand. But throughout the book, you know, there are a number of themes I try to address. And, and one of them was um, hypocrisy, right? And how, even under the umbrella of judgment, like my life has played out um, from that aspect. So the story about my father and the palestra and and me um, vowing the hating for the rest of uh, my life was really only the setup to get to my son's Wharton graduation at the palestra, right? And to talk about how he felt without really bringing his voice in how he had to deal with, for lack of a better word, of uh, how he had to deal with my exposure. So my father's exposure, you know, um, 
with the drug abuse and just my exposure with the kind of failure in character, how the judgment um, almost really brought out the hypocrisy that I was carrying because the same empathy and compassion and forgiveness I was unwilling to extend to my dad. I was begging for it from, from my own children, in particular, my oldest son, only because the Wharton graduation was held in the palestra, the same place where like I just shut down from, from my own father. And so like that, you know, you know, you know, that's real. Um, and, and what it taught me was that, you know, we, you know, we all kind of view events, um, with either certain biases or, or a certain level of kind of understanding where we always separate ourselves from, from the actual act. And so when it was his turn, I was able to thrust all of those feelings onto him. But when it was my turn to be the culprit, now my whole mindset completely shifted. And so bringing that to the forefront, I was hoping to use that as an example to say, maybe we as human beings need to judge, be, be less judgmental for lack of a better way of saying it, because when it comes back around, it can really you know, bite us in the butt. The, the book has uh, some of the most raw like self-examination that I've ever read. Um, and it's impressive how, how you can, you know, talk about a moment when you were, whether it's in the courtroom or whether it's um, talking to your family and feeling like, um, like you're, oh, I did this. I, you're hot, like you're hot headed in the moment. Like you're mm -hmm. in a, in an emotional moment that you're reacting one way. And then in the book you dissect, that wasn't what it was about. I was in the wrong because here's what it really was. Like I was really being, I thought, I thought that I was being selfless, mm -hmm. but really that thing was selfishness in a different manifestation was that hard to do to really like really look into those moments and talk about yourself and, and what was going through your head in a way that is you know pretty unforgiving yeah I mean it was <laughs> to, to be honest with you like you know so the, the editor her name is Deborah Freese right and she uh as I was going through all the different drafts right um she kept saying, all right, so why? About everything. Um, why'd you feel this way? Why do you think, you know, your perspective is this? And every time I thought I got to a level of understanding where I thought I was complete, she would come back and say, why again? So in doing that, right, constantly asking myself why, I just kept peeling back the layers and it helped me to have a better understanding of, of things. So me in the moment in the courtroom, arguing with the the sentencing judge right that happened in the moment but upon removing myself from it and upon reflection having an opportunity to really think about that like allow me to really get to the selfishness right or get to the root of what the problem really was right as much as i was trying to say no it wasn't about me. I didn't do this for me. I'm trying to help others. In all actuality, it, it, it was always about me. 
And so in a moment, I couldn't I couldn't really get there. And then when I finally got there, it was like, are, am I going to be true to the project and 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 tell that or withhold that? And I just felt like, you know, you know, it was part of my testimony. And I, I wanted to be obedient and just kind of deliver it in, in its rawest form. Yeah. I, Isaiah, Isaiah Thomas, uh, UW Isaiah Thomas, mm-hmm. Boston Celtics Isaiah Thomas, writes the foreword to your book. Um, and he talks about the saddest time in his life after, after uh, his sister's funeral. Um, and he scores 33 points and plays that day. Um, and, he sa- and he writes, Jerome didn't care. He still had a sheet full of bullet points. Um, and he goes through all the th- you know, a bunch of the things that you said he did wrong during the game. Um, and he said when he read this book, it felt like Jerome was breaking down his own performance. Um, and I thought that was a really poignant way to say it. Like you're, you sort of were like going through the tape yeah. of your life or these moments of your life and diagnosing and being like, ah, should have made that play. All right, that's why you did that, but this was the, the better move. Well, that kind of which thing. is kind of like weird, right? So we never have these experiences with ourselves, with ourselves to where that we, we could do something like that. And I'm not saying that like, because I think I'm this great writer. Again, I was in the sixth grade on the third grade reading level, and and I never thought I would I would ever be an author. But the the beauty of it was that you know, sometimes penning a story, even as I would go back and read my words, it was almost as if like like God just took over the pen and was like, "This is what I want you to write," right? And so, you know, for him to say that. It, it was almost like, yeah, Isaiah, that's that's exactly it. Like, how do you break down your own performance, right? With and not have a biased kind of perspective while you're in the moment, which which is kind of difficult. And that's why I kind of give Deborah Freeze, you know, so much credit for just you know asking me the right questions to you know to to help me kind of start penning it the way it, it needed to be told. We take a pause with, well, with, from our conversation with Jerome Allen. Jerome, just please quiet for one second when we talk about our presenting sponsor, DraftKings Sportsbook. Oh, so no more basketball. All there is is basketball futures. But we are in week seven of what is shaping up to be one of the most painful Philadelphia football seasons just in history. Um, I get my hopes up every single week. I go from... You do, really? Well, what happens is, you can explain to me if this is like the... To me, it's like the normal normal track. After the loss, you're like, this team fucking sucks. They're never winning another game. And then, like, slowly through the week, you're like, this is always a game the Eagles win, like, by the end, even if they're 10-point underdogs, like, every time. Um, I I really have done a great job, and... (laughs) It's one of the things that I'm so proud of myself for is that after the Super Bowl win, I've, just I really have been able to in, enjoy it as like a as like a show. Yeah, something to do. Like when someone do, when someone like when the protagonist of a show that you watch <laughs> fails, you're like, ah, well, that was good though. They did it. That was good writing. And so like it it ending on a you know a, the the one of the worst two point conversions I've ever seen. It was such like a ah, that's great. That's exactly how they would live. Yeah. Well, yep. 
fun, fun ride. Oh, it's good that you can feel that way. Yeah, uh, I can't feel that with the Sixers or Phillies, but I do. I do have that with the Eagles. So, so that's nice. uh, our guys are a four and a half point favorite on Thursday night. Opened up at six. Of course, I feel they're going to win thirty to ten. But that's it's every week, every week. Look, the only place that you want to bet on football is DraftKings Sportsbook for so many different reasons. First of all, if you're a new user, use the promo code RTRS, uh, get a sign up bonus up to a thousand dollars when you sign up. Second. Um, look, there's live betting, right? There's that. I, I feel like hometown fans have an advantage in live betting because you can take advantage of a team that you, a, a game that you know your team's going to lose, even though they're up ten points. You take advantage of that. That's with the live betting. Look, if you don't want to bet football, MMA. There's still baseball. Uh, a few more baseball games you can bet that. Uh, UFC 254 coming up. As I mentioned, basketball futures. And the reason it's the best app, it's clean, it's easy to use. You get your money right away. Uh, you can make a deposit right away. It's all very simple. It's all right here in the U.S. Um, download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app and use promo code RTRS. When you sign up, get to get up to $1,000. That's code RTRS to get a sign-up bonus up to $1,000 for a limited time. Only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be 21 or older. Pennsylvania only in partnership with Meadows Racetrack and Casino. Bonus comprised of a first deposit bonus and a first bet match, each up to $500. Deposit bonus requires 25 times playthrough restrictions apply see draftkings.com sportsbook for details gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER all right back to the pod you know sort of like therapy um I, I would imagine that as hard as it is to come to grips with um all of the things that you talk about in the book and specifically the last few years there is a a freeing feeling to saying here's all of it i said it there it is. And now I don't have to hide from it anymore. You know, like I don't have to, there's, there's the idea of shame doesn't exist anymore because I've, I've like sort of put it for, for you to look at in front of me. Like it, it has to feel good and freeing to sort of be rid of that in some fashion. Yeah. That was like one of the reasons why I said, you know what, you know, the question is the, the, the moral dilemma is going to be populated on both sides and I'm okay with it, you know? And mm -hmm. some people may understand, some people, you know, may say, you know, but so what, right? Um, but to be honest with you, the like the really the release of guilt came, you know, on January the 11th at around 1130 at night, you know, and when, uh, excuse me, well, well, really, you know, that, that morning. Um, but the combination of that day from them cutting the location monitor off my ankle to them putting that plate of dessert in front of my face saying congrats, you know, it was like, I just really, I always wanted to be, I wish I, I would be lying to you if I said, I woke up every day saying, I want to be a great father. I mean, excuse me, a great husband, right? Now I know that's my, that's my first priority, right? That's my responsibility and my union. But a large part of my life, I woke up every day saying, I wanted, I want to be a great father. I want my kids to be proud of me. And it probably stemmed from what I was wishing I had, right? And so for me to to do what I did, right, and put their sense of normalcy in jeopardy, right, it's like th that was heavy on top of, you know, you know, the reputation that the basketball program had at Penn, you know, my, my former teammates, the young men I coached, and the, the young men that will eventually play for the you know program. But for my own children, you know, it was like, you know, when they just said that, 
you know, it's okay. Mm-hmm. Like that, that kind of like, you know, let it go. So all the, you know, I, again, I never responded. I, I just got on social media. Like I never really responded or, uh, uh, to like all the articles that was written about the case or about me. And I just is like, you know what, you know, I'm a controller narrative and I'm, I'm going to tell, you know, my own story. I don't want it to be on lifetime and, or, you know, or, or something like that, or have someone else kind of depict me. Like here's, here's my version, you know, the person who experienced it Here's my version of the story. And trust me, like, I'm not going to depict myself in a positive light, but I'm a pick to pick myself um, as honestly as I possibly can. Do you think you always, I'm going back to thinking about watching you in high school and then watching you at Penn. Do you think you always thought about the game sort of like a coach does? Because it, looking back on it, I feel maybe it's just because you were a point guard, but I always felt like that was the kind of a game that you had. Well, I mean, you know, playing for Coach Doc at Episcopal, he yeah. <laughs> he, he was going to make sure that you know I played the right way. He was he yeah. made sure that I I uh, I had the proper vision, for the lack of a better way of saying it. Like he made sure I celebrated my teammates. He made sure we got everyone involved and and he did a good job of of pacing me my time at Episcopal like I didn't had to go there I got cut from varsity I had to play JV and and at the time I thought you know he didn't know what he was talking about or like what did I sign up for but that just process he knew what I needed and so um from Coach Doc to Coach Dunf and you you know Larry Brown with the Pacers like all the Andrea Trinkieri and Dusko Ivanovic and Andrea Mazzone, you know, all the, even my coaches in um, uh, Atelio Kaya, Cesare Pancoto, even all my coaches in, in Europe. Um, you know, what I tried to do was be an extension of, you know, of, of the coach while I was on the floor. Um, and uh, I would like to think, you know, I even tried to, you know, even with some help, you know, coach myself, you know, through this as, as difficult as it was. For anyone listening, Coach Doherty, who was the um, the basketball coach at Episcopal, he was my math teacher uh, freshman year. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget, he, he went through and he picked up my homework, which I had done in pen, which was unacceptable. And he picked it up and he just ripped it up in front of everyone. And he dropped it on the floor. <laughs> and that that is my like. And then I would say like five years ago, I saw him. I hadn't seen him since high school. And I saw him at a this is the kind of guy he was, right? So that that's my memory of him. But I always had this positive memory of Coach Doc. So I saw him at a a charity, a lacrosse charity thing, you know, that his son was at. And I mm-hmm. hadn't seen him since high school. And I introduced myself and he, he started had tears in my eye, in his eyes and he gave me like this big hug. And you're talking about a guy, like I didn't play for him, mm-hmm. you know, and I had him one year, um, but he was that kind of a guy. He was the kind of a guy who was so tough, but did love the people that you know the players he coached and the the kids that he taught. Yeah, that that, that was Coach Doc. I I remember my freshman year, I had him for math as well, and on a I had the front row, the front seat closest to the to the blackboard, and mm-hmm. in the corner, like I signed my autograph, like Jerome Allen. I'm this freshman from 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 the city, and he's just like, "What do you think you're doing?" <laughs> you erased that off of my board. And, and in my crazy mind, I was like, one day somebody going to want my autograph. 
but but uh, yeah. Um, what was your? Uh, it's we've been we've done this to pretty much every guest we've that we've had, um, because the Sixers don't have any guards. You're 47. <laughs> you look like you're still in good shape. Can, can you, you come on? Could you play for the Sixers? <laughs> yeah. Could you please start? Add guard for the Sixers. <laughs> uh, What's your game like these days? My 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 mouth is better than my game. Man, I believe <laughs> that. Uh, you, you know, it's funny, funny story. So, like I said, I, I just got on social media, and uh, I, a couple months ago, I didn't even know how to send a DM, and and my my son showed me how to do it. It's sad, right? My youngest son, and he's he just turned eleven. But on on my Instagram, one day I was in practice, and so. We got to the bubble, and um, we had a—I don't want to say short staff, but we were only allowed to bring, if I'm not mistaken, 37 members of our normal travel party, right? And, so, and that was including the players. So, long story short, we all—from Brad, myself, our entire staff—staff staff had to do a little bit more because we were short staff. So, um, I—I was put into a, a, a defensive drill with the guys, and uh, and. I actually only had to play offense that, that day. And so maybe like 10 possessions, I was able to play a pick pick and roll. And Jalen Brown had to guard me. Kimber Walker had to guard me. Tremont Waters had to guard me. Um, Jason Tatum had to guard me. And and uh, I got 10 possessions uh, in the pick and roll where I'm the ball handler. And I think all of the, all of the possessions Enos Cantor was, was in the pick and roll coverage. So I'm out there, I'm, I'm bouncing and and I didn't even pop any or leave that day. But about six of the possessions, like, I looked pretty good. So, <laughs> so I, I took the, uh, the clips from the, from the practice film off. I recorded it on my phone and, yeah. I, and I posted, uh, I posted it on, on my Instagram because my son, my youngest son and I got into an argument about the defense that I played on Allen Iverson in 1997. So, <laughs> so I was like, yeah, I still got it. Well, you know, a, lo- a lot of our listeners are too young to re- like to have seen you play. Like, I, I just want to give a memory because uh, it's bringing. It's very good to see you, by the way. Like, I, I haven't Same. seen you in Same. in so long. Um, I look like I'm the only one that's Asian, but that's a different story. No, come on. It smoke looks very old for context. I was going to say, don't tell him that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so people didn't get to see you play. So here's, this is a true story, and I'm glad there was a line about it in the book. So I remember people talking about, like, I'm maybe in my mid-20s, and somebody says something about a sham god. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, sham god, whatever. And I looked at the move, and I was like, well, that's, that's what that's Jerome's move. Like that's what mm-hmm. Jerome did, and I'll never forget. I think you did it to Kevin Johnson once because Smoke had it on. Because I, I, I went to find it on YouTube yesterday. You're pretty so, sharp, Spike. Yeah, You're pretty well, sharp. I, I remember because Smoke had it on VH. Had that game on VHS, and I remember <laughs> specifically being at Dwayne Vargas's house. And they would rewind it and play you getting Kevin Johnson and all react as if it had just happened every time. Good. So uh, you were you were really, really good. And do, so you mentioned in the book, like just you were really fucking good, man. And you mentioned in the book that you had these other, you had other offers, you know, not mm-hmm. just Penn. You had D1 schools that w- would give you a full ride, like ba- people, you know, 
historical basketball schools, you know. Do you look back at that and think, hey, if I had gone to one of those schools, I know you're happy that you went to Penn, but do you think if you went to one of those schools, your basketball career maybe ends up in a different way than it ended up? Um, no, I never really thought about it that way because, uh, I mean, I, I used to always say uh, anytime like we was at home or in the block, um, I used to say like, I played for professionally for 14 years. Like I yeah. never, I lived in six different countries. Like I never thought that I would, that all of these things would, you know, would happen. Um, and the, the best, the one good thing about Philly was, and the big five was that even though I went to Penn, I still felt like, like I would had to compete against Villanova and, and Temple and St. Joe's and LaSalle, you know, every, every year. And, and especially in the summer times. So when all the guys were, you know, we had the Sunny Hill League, the Sunny Hill College League. So I never really felt like uh, that I missed out on a basketball experience. And it's probably because Philadelphia was so unique with so many schools and so many guys uh, coming back in the summertime. And I think those, you know, workouts at Gus Ting Lake with John Harnett and Tennis Young and, you know, I think all of those things actually helped me to get better on top of the coaching staff we had at Penn. And that's why I said in the book, you know, Fran O'Hanlon was the one uh, who actually showed me the move. And, you know, he's the head coach at Lafayette now. Um, but even I was in Africa in 2018 and my youngest son, who I keep referencing, we were there with, uh, with um, Basketball Without Borders and NBA Cares and, and God Sham God was there. And so my, my son walks up to him and says, and I think he's eight at the time, was what, was you the first one to do the sham God or was my dad? <laughs> yeah. And, and so, what did he say? He didn't even answer me. He just like kind of walked away from him. <laughs> yeah. So. yeah, when you get it named after you, I think you kind of just have to take credit for it forever. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool. It's do you, it's do cool. you have a mental Rolodex of guy, like legend? So Kevin Johnson, Kevin Johnson is actually a guy who I feel like would be a, like a, a 2020 guard, you know, like I, a, do you have, do you have like a mental Rolodex of like famous guys that you got? Famous guys that I got? Like, like famous guys that were guarding you that you, that you, that you got. Um, it's probably the other way around. Famous guys <laughs> that I was guarding that got, that got me. Oh yeah. yeah we, 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 I keep going back to this. So the clip on, on my Instagram um, that was followed by the six clips from practice was the Pacers versus versus uh, the Sixers, Iverson's rookie year. And so I'm pleading with my son, Roman, you, you got to play both ends of the floor. Like, you got to be a good defender as well. And, and he's like, Dad, you always telling me this. Like, I bet you wasn't a good defender. So I find, <laughs> a, so I find a clip of me guarding Iverson. And Iverson took about nine dribbles and, and he doesn't shake me and then he goes to the hole and he throws up a scoop shot and, and miss. Um, and I'm like, yeah, see, you know, I told you I was a lockdown defender. I told you that. And then thanks for, to Google, well, unfortunately, he Googles the box score from the game. And he says, <laughs> <laughs> and he, said, he had 37. <laughs> he had 37. He was killing you. 
So, but, <laughs> wow. but, but, but yeah, I, I, I can't say, I mean, yeah, we had a clip. I showed him a clip of B with the last dance and B playing against the Bulls and Michael Jordan. And, and, uh, uh, I, I lose him on a, on a play and I turn my head and he respaces, they kick back out to him. I, I close out and, uh, I close out short and he hits a three. And he's like, yeah, your hand wasn't up when you closed out. So, <laughs> so I, it's probably more so the other, other, other way around. Yeah. Just in coach for the Celtics now, uh, I think about a guy like Brad Wanamaker who had a kind of similar career path to you in that Philly guy went and played overseas for a while, comes back and now sort of remakes himself as a really dependable bench guy what's your relationship like with him and and how do you feel like your stories are similar um i mean i i'm i kind of even though i told you guys i'm I'm not a Sixers fan i'm a philly fan so all of the guys that are from the philadelphia area whether i knew them before they made it to the league or not like i I always root for them or even on the road if i get a chance to see them like i go out of my way to speak or whatever but, you know, for the past, you know, two years, like just watching Brad, you know, we used to have this program called the Hood and Rich Program. And Hood stood for um, helping our own develop. And Pat Grant and, and Juan Barrow and myself, um, we kind of started that. And, and Brad and his brother Brian played for, for us for a little bit. But then he trans, transitioned and started playing for Positive Image. So I've known Brad, you know, for, I mean, since he was, I'm going to say 12, 13 years old um, and not from a, like from a, a mentor standpoint, but like we've known one another. Um, so to have him here as a Celtic and watch, you know, his career, like I, my pen team went and played, played against Pitt. And, and I, I can't say I, I saw this coming in terms of him being as productive as he is in the league. But he, he's just he's just been phenomenal, man. He's a pro's pro. I mean, obviously he's a little bit older, but he's a veteran, man. He, he's craft. He's almost kind of like we used to have this reputation in Philly as just you know guards that just was hard nosed and tough and nothing flashy and just you know knew how to play the game and played it the right way. And, and Brad is kind of he kind of epitomizes that. And and he's just such like a good guy, like low maintenance and and uh, and he doesn't back down. Can't jump over a piece of paper, but that's a, di- <laughs> that's a different story. Uh, We're about a month out of away from the draft. Um, what do you remember about the process that you went through of going to get drafted and and that night, uh, and what that's like for a player? You mm-hmm. know, to be inspected and then just have to wait. I mean, I, I actually wouldn't wish that on. My, on my worst enemy. Uh, <laughs> I remember waiting like three hours and fifty-seven minutes to hear hear my name called that night, and and you know you you, you get shopped around and you got to go to different workouts and um, sometimes you work out for a team uh, multiple times and and uh, you know you listen to all the questions and the interviews and you know they say oh, we pick here like a team will come bring you in to work out. And you don't know if you're just a filler or or if they're really interested in you at a certain slot. And so 
um, and, you know, share information with your agent. So I actually thought I was going for four different places or I thought I could be picked by four different teams, four different slots all in the first round. 16th pick come up. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm about to. I think I might go right here. And then the 21st pick came up and then the 28th pick came up and then the 30th pick came up. And and then two hours later, you know, while they were at commercial break, um, they said, ah, the, while we were away, the Minnesota Timberwolves selected Jerome Allen, the 49th pick. And, you know, I had kept seeing my name and my picture up on the screen, who's still available, right? And so yeah. when they were coming back, you know, this maybe like a, 10 second delay before they actually started talking. So to see my my uh, picture up on the screen, it didn't automatically trigger that, oh, I got taken while they were at commercial, while they were at a commercial. <laughs> so um, they didn't call you? You just found out watching TV? Like you didn't get a call or anything? So, so that this again, this is 1995, oh, right. right? Yes, and, yes, uh, yes, yes, yes. Um, yeah. They have phones though. Yeah, but so I wasn't, I was at my girlfriend's apartment yeah. I didn't, mm-hmm. my, my family kind of threw a draft party at my grandma's house and and I didn't want to watch it with anyone. I didn't want to be around anyone. So they got my, gra- my grandma's backyard all decked out and they got music and food and my whole family is there. And uh, um, I was right on LaSalle's campus sitting in her apartment at Alania Ogans in the dark, just watching the draft. And when I finally heard like, when that was announced, I just dropped to my knees, like, thank God um, for the opportunity. Got up, jumped in her car, and then drove to my grandmother's house. And, and as soon as I pulled up, Smoke and Terry was standing outside, cursing. This is bullshit. I can't believe they took, he stinks and da 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 I don't know what they doing in the league. And, and then they, their reaction got my grandmother upset. She didn't know anything about the draft or, or <laughs> um, and I, I got out the car smiling and trying to hug everybody. I was like, man, like, I can you believe I got drafted? Like, I never thought, like, I never thought I dreamed of playing in the NBA, but you know, you think it's going to happen to the next guy. So I never thought that I, I would be in that position. So I try not to lose sight of it because it was, I was even one of, at that time, if I'm not mistaken, 58 guys, maybe in the world. So, uh, but it, it's crazy. It's just waiting. Um, what is, uh, you mentioned Tremont Waters, um, who's a rookie on the Celtics last year, along with uh, Carson Edwards as a point guard. I like, I really like both of those guys. What's the hardest thing to teach rookies and especially rookie guards um, about transitioning to the next level? Oof. I mean, I mean, there's so I, much. I say, th- I say this as a, as a guy who hopes that the Sixers have some guards to <laughs> One actually day. teach One day. something to yeah. <laughs> where they could, you know, just the idea of dribbling and, you know, moving yeah. moving around and sometimes shooting quickly even would be nice. Yeah. Uh, so this is this is very informative. It's, it's as a teaching point guards, you know, as they're transitioning into the NBA, it's probably it's the hardest position in the league, right? So it's, you know, we talk about, patience and 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 reading progressions and and being able to set set the kitchen table knowing where the forks go knowing where the knives go where the cups go like and trying to keep everybody happy and making sure that you execute and what the coach wants and and being a great communicator and understanding like 
what gets guys going, how you can kind of get the best out of guys. You know, that's, you know, that's, that's a lot to expect the guy to be able to walk right through the door and have a mastery of. Um, and so if I had to pick one thing you know, to answer your question, um, I, I would probably say, uh, the, the hardest thing to teach is probably like reading progressions. Um, and, uh, and, and that's because the margin of error or the, the window to take advantage of a mistake at this level decreases significantly from college to the NBA because you're the best athletes in the world. They cover so much ground so fast. Um, they're athletic, talented, the IQ, the savviness is, is just, it's just a lot. And so, um, and, and, you know, and then you got every, all the other guys on the floor that want the ball, like, yo, I'm open right here. You know, you looked me off the last time. It was like, I'm just trying to run the play that coach said running. <laughs> so yeah, I thought I had a clue my rookie year and I realized that I did, but to, to kind of make it, make it so that they don't feel like they're on an island all by themselves. I always try to tell our guards that even at 47, even at, after playing professionally for 14 years and coaching in this league for five years, like I, I learn something new every year. And so um, it's okay to be where you at on a timeline. Just keep your head down and, and be a sponge and, and, and don't be a know-it-all. We take one final break to talk about our sponsor. That's right, our guy, Adam Kornblau. Kornblau and Kornblau, the official law firm of the, of the process. I, Mike, I miss, um, I miss like live events. I miss us doing our events. But I think what I miss most are LL and Kornblau showing up in suits to our live events. Yeah. It's one of my favorite things. Kornblau, of course, at the- It's really their night. Yeah. <laughs> It really is. I mean, if you ask them, they would certainly say it was their night. Cornblow showing up in Underground Arts, buying 50 corn dogs for people, selling out of corn dogs, both at Underground Arts and the uh, Franklin Music Hall. Just an, an excellent live show attender, but also the an excellent personal injury lawyer. The Him and his mom run Cornblow and Cornblow. It's the only personal injury law firm you need. It is the only one you're going to call up. You know you're going to get the person who you're hearing about. You see billboards for some, you know, personal injury law firms. They're just uh, what I, I want to say. Oh, they're just like referral services. You're not even really dealing with them. With Cornblow and Cornblow, you deal with Cornblow. He has a passion for this, and as we've mentioned a bunch of times, even if you don't have a personal injury lawsuit, he is there to help any Ricky listener with any legal issue. Um, medical malpractice is their specialty, but any sort of injury. If you're hurt at all, uh, got hurt at work, slip and fall, in a car accident, whatever, call Cornblow. It doesn't cost you anything, nothing, until he gets you results. If you think you have a case, give him a call or shoot him an email. 215-576-7200. Ask for Adam or email cornblow at cornblow and cornblow.com. Cornblow, spelled with a K, the and in the email is spelled A-N-D, and the rest... Cornblow and Cornblow, the official law firm of the process. You've mentioned social media a bunch of times, and um, it's funny. I remember talking to Smoke like maybe 10 years ago about what high school would have been like for him and us if we had to deal with 
Yeah. Well, he was convinced he'd be dead and I don't, <laughs> I don't disagree. He probably would. Be. Um, but, uh, but thinking about the players that you coach now, right. Uh, talking about like exposure in just in general mm-hmm. and like how much of them is exposed to the public and what they have to deal with compared to when, when you were playing, um, and so many of them are, you know, you talk about going through what you went through, but you have your wife, you have your kids, you have an organization around you. You're 22 years old, 23 years old. You're going through all of what the NBA uh, and being famous and being rich does to you with social media young. What can the league do? What can teams do? And I guess what can fans do to make this a more like a a less difficult experience for what I perceive it to be. Because it feels like they have the weight of, look, even in the bubble, they have the weight of police violence on Mm. their shoulders. You're talking about 20 year olds, you know? Um, How do we make this better for them? Like, how do we make this a more positive experience? That that's, I think that's a great question. Um, And that goes back to Michael's, uh, Last question, just in terms of some of the things that they have to learn, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's it's difficult. Like, I, I really wouldn't be able to like point out one one thing. So I, I try to say, put myself in their shoes. Like you said, at twenty two, with millions of dollars, um, and access, right, followers, and. And when I say followers, meaning like not necessarily followers, but just fans of the game, right? So, you know, people spend their hard-earned money, right? Their disposable income on entertainment. And that's what sports is, right? It's entertainment. It's a it's a release. It's an outlet. It, 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 it connects so many from all different walks of life, right? But at the end of the day, we all have a vested interest, right? Whether it be in players, teams, or organizations, the, the sport itself again, like I came on you guys show with my Eagles, you know, hat on and we're one, four and one. Right. But uh, this is my support. Like I am an Eagles fan. Right. And, right. and so I, I, I'm passionate. And every time Wentz doesn't complete a pass, I'm throwing my hat around the room. And, you know, my, you know, my son or my wife is getting upset because I'm too loud. But the point I'm trying to make is that, is that, at the end of the day, these guys are like human, right? And they mm-hmm. have, like, they have issues that the rest of society has, right? And so, one of the things I thought Brad did an awesome job of was champion for our guys to have mental health resources, right? This was a couple of years ago, and it's still present now. But just all of the things the emotions, the mood swings that we go through, right? As normal people, these guys go through as well. The difference is some people get blinded by that they have uh, a, a unique skill set on a basketball court, right? And so this long soliloquy that I'm on right now to answer your question is just pretty much coming back to that. If more people could understand that they are they are human as well right um i think 
um, it could not necessarily normalize their experience, but but it, it could help them if if I could champion for that. Now some guys don't make it easy on themselves, right? They think they got all the answers, they think they know everything, and they just think that they could say anything, right, or act any old kind of way, and it could be above us. But the good ones, this is me standing on a soapbox for the good ones. The good ones is like, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know, like what it feels like to go. I'm just using this for a game. You know, Jason Tatum, our first game in in the bubble, went two for 18. And I could only imagine what was said in the comments on whether it was that, that box score post or something like that. You know, everybody, like, you know, my own mother tells me, you know, this is what you, you should be running at this point in the game. And, and then, I, I, you know, my oldest son is saying, you know, why didn't you, why didn't you run this? Or, 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 Smoke is like, fam, like, you know, you, y'all should have, you know, everybody has an opinion, right? And it's okay. I get it. It's understandable, but it's just, uh, like, just really understanding that these guys are like human beings. And I'm trying, I'm trying to champion for the good ones. Some of the guys are, are assholes. And, and, and sometimes they like, like you, you try not to extend as much sympathy towards them as, as they deserve. But, you know, the older you get, the more patient you are. And a lot of times they act like that because they're really trying to deflect insecurities that they're not even aware that they carry, you know. So, in my opinion. What what was it like? You mentioned the, being down in the bubble. What was it like um, when uh, the season was hanging in the balance after the uh, – after the couple teams staged uh, basically a walkout? Um, the Bucks after the shooting of Jacob Blake by police over there. Yeah, that was a crazy day. And so I was inside the town hall meeting, right, that took place. And, um, you know, for me, like, I was like, this is this is a, a moment in sports history, right? Mm-hmm. And so I stood on the back wall and, and uh, held my phone up and I took a picture of the room. Right, not necessarily focused on one particular guy. You know, it was 22 teams down there, so everyone knew who was inside the room. But just to have uh, a reference to that moment in time, um, and, and not like not trying to compare it to the summit with Jim Brown and Kareem and Muhammad, um, but it was just it was a uh, it, it was something I, I would never forget, and and like. Any family, whether it's a large family or small family, like when you get together in a room or at the kitchen table and you have to decide on or, or make a decision, like, you know, you get raw feelings or, or the emotions and not everyone's going to agree. Um, um, but, you know, it, it was I won't say it was chaotic, but it was it was real. And uh I would be, I wouldn't come on your show and lie, right? And say that, ah, it was nothing. And we just talked and it was like, kumbaya. No, you know, there was some disagreements and there was some tough information shared. Um, And and like I said, the whole bubble experience for me, like I I felt so grateful just to be there. Um, And especially in that room, you you know, um, at that time. And so, uh, 
It's something I'll never forget. You've, you've mentioned Brad Stevens. So ever since he got into the league, all we have to hear about is like, you know, what a fucking genius Brad Stevens is, <laughs> yada, yada, yada. So you, you as a, <laughs> you as a, um, you know, as a former player and now working under him as an assistant coach, what is, what makes Brad Stevens a great coach? Why is he a great coach? So I, people ask me this all the time and, okay. and here's my, here's my answer. And then I'll, I'll tell you guys two quick stories. All right. Okay. So here's my answer to that. He's not always right, but he's always prepared. And I think that's what sets him apart, right? His, he prepares and, and, and I lead into the first story. The first story is this, we're in the bubble and, uh, and this, this has happened before, but in the bubble, it's timeout. He addresses the team and there's maybe say 30 seconds left in the timeout, right? Whatever he drew up, he still, the time was still there before the guys had to get up out of the seats. So he leans over and he, and he says, guys, listen, at this point in the game, this is one of the timeouts they like to run. The other team we're playing against. I don't want to say the name of the team. He draws up a play, right? He's like, so if this guy starts here, da, 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 this, there's the play. He drew it up verbatim. They come out of the huddle, walk on the floor, sideline out of bounds. That team ran that same play, that same exact play that he drew up. Now the team still scored, but it, it goes to my point is that mm -hmm. that's how, that's how hard he prepares. Like he knows the other team stuff. I would like to argue probably better than some of the other coaches know their own stuff. And it happened again later on in the same game, right? He came out again and he just leaned over. He's like, can you believe that, Jerome? Like, they they ran the ATO I drew up, you know, twice. I mean, they still scored on us, but they ran it up. <laughs> but, but what most people don't know is, like, he has a, like, you know, he's a stoic and he stands there and he's, like, emotionless. This is what people, you know, would say to me. I was like, yeah, well, are you looking at the same guy I'm looking at? Like, He's competitive, like he gets fired up. It's like, oh no, he's always even killed. I was like, yo, you just don't know. So we're playing the last seeding game, seeding game in the bubble. Teams get introduced, right? And uh, guys walk out on the floor. The DJ's playing music, right? So they're not ready to throw the ball up yet. And so we're sitting there, right? And the DJ plays a song and then he mixes in um, Rob Bass, right? So he come in on the one, you know, which is right before the hook, right? And uh, he's Rob Bass, I want to rock right now, right? I'm Rob Bass and I came to get down. So Rob Bass starts, I want to rock right now. As he's starting that, Brad is singing along, right? <laughs> and, and so I just bust out laughing. I said, yo, nobody will believe Right before the game, you sitting on the bench talking about, I want to rock right now. I'm about bass and I can't even get down, right? And he's like, what? What are you talking about? It's, it's 90s hip hop. Like, and I just, I just bust out laughing. So 
I'm the only sharing that to say like he I mean the man is always prepared um probably one of the most like you talk about family and just like even killed and like he cares about people like our families our wives our children can fly on a team plane anytime um we want um it's a family atmosphere um and you know kind of like obviously this comes from the the top down but that's something that that he's always been about since i've been here all right. Well, anytime Brad Stevens is anything good, I'm going to say it's a Jerome Allen play. I'm not going <laughs> yeah. to that. yeah, fine. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I can't take any credit for that. <laughs> uh, it was interesting you talked about, um, in the book, you talk about, uh, you know, you, the struggles you went through as a kid, and you talk about how, you know, sometimes even now you still look at sometimes having like a full fridge. And, right. and feeling like that's a really special thing that you couldn't have, you know, you didn't have as much as a kid. Um, what's it like? Because you, you had a, a successful professional career, but you're not LeBron James. You didn't make all the money in the world. Right. Um, and your kids aren't like crazy famous or anything, but they're like, but they're more well off than you were. And what is it like raising kids that are, um, going through a lot of the same things you are, but not, you know, some of the same. They're not having to really struggle in, in all of the ways that that you struggled. Right. So, yeah, I, I guess the, the issues, it's all relative, right? And the issues um, are, are, are different, right? So it may not be because we have, we only have peanut butter and jelly and oodles and noodles, right? Or ramen noodles, as we would say to eat, but it, it just, it may be dealing with, right, the the, the issues that come with um, a father who committed wire fraud, right? Or it may be um, just dealing with the issues of this time and social media, or, you know, having a daughter who is, um, who takes a million selfies, right? Because, right, that's what, you know, this, the world is doing now, right? And trying to make sure that, you know, long fingernails and four inch eyelashes and, um, and just different outfits um, are, aren't the things that, or, or, or driving who she is as a person, right? And, and so, you know, these times that we're in, you know, possesses possess issues that are completely different from when I was growing up, right? And again, it might not be the monetary issue, but it's it, they're still there. And so, when I talk to them about like what I didn't have. They really not trying to hear it, right? Um, or they'll just say, "Oh, for real," and then brush it off. Not because they think I'm a liar, but it's just it doesn't necessarily resonate with them all the time because they're trying to figure some stuff out, you know, on, on their own. And and again, and one thing the book helped me uh, with was that again, I had this, like I said, this disdain for access and privilege, right? 
Um, but uh, wasn't I too trying to afford those same things to my children? You know, and and, uh, and again, it goes back to the hypocrisy, right? But it's like they, you know, I'm just in a position to try to make sure that you know they can, you know, those things they can sustain those things throughout throughout their uh, their their life. Um, so. Um, you know, it's like any parent, like, you know, I pray every morning and every night for them, for their protection. And, and I pray that they make correctable mistakes, you know, not life altering mistakes. Um, and, you know, just because they don't have to eat ramen noodles and peanut butter and jelly out of, out of necessity, um, doesn't necessarily mean that they don't have their own issues, whether I can relate to them or not. I can't, I'm not here to, to lie to you and say, I, I relate to everything that they struggle with. That's, you know, sometimes like my biases or, you know, just my way of thinking won't allow me to make that connection. But my love for them always trumps, you know, all of them. You, you mentioned, um, there's a line in there about the, uh, lack of character, a failure of character is different than a lack of character. And it, it reminded me of something that uh, Obama said a couple of years ago, just about that. You know, he was like, the world's messy, like good people do bad things, bad people do good things, you know, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. I guess that like, isn't the real question, how do you tell the difference between a failure of character and a lack of character, right? Like, how do you... Uh, in yourself and other people like that isn't that like the hard part is is seeing somebody that did something terrible and trying to figure out whether it defines them or not right so like the the one thing in in trying to make that difference is like we are all the summation of our experiences right and uh and, and like i said i said you know this is not my story it's part of my story right right and, and just use that as an example to say um again in the beginning i went through this whole list of things that i did right you know how i'm trying to help and trying to to share these things with you know with other people someone would say how could somebody who would you know fly 36 kids to italy right for free um, and take them to the Sistine Chapel and Vatican Square and Roman Colosseum and, and Bologna and Chesanatico. Um, also, like, use his privilege as, as a head coach and, and kind of fudge the system to help somebody else, right? Like how, like, how are these things kind of, like, inside of the same person? And so, you know, we end the book with, you know, me being like kind-hearted and, and giving and selfless is like, but I also have bouts of envy and jealousy and, and all these things. And, you know, we got to stir all these things up in the pot, right? Um, to try to, when I talked about the failure versus lack, right? Was saying if they, if the reader st- stuck with me long enough, I could get to like, to the point where they see everything that I carry, right? But at 47, I'm seasoned enough, and whether it was a uh, um, uh, the exposure that brought these things to uh, to the forefront, but I'm seasoned enough to say, like, at, on a certain day, right, I have bouts of these things that 
if unchecked, these things could spill out into the world, right? And and it's like, I, you know, we talked about it, like, at the job and me wanting, uh, say, uh, the responsibility of performing a certain exercise and that not being awarded to me, right? Um, and then me looking like, uh, you know, I'm, I think I'm qualified or I think, I, you know, I know enough to be able to, to get that done, right? And just because that wasn't the case, now my face is frowned up. Well, I'm losing sight of, wait a minute, like, like you know, you're an assistant coach of the Boston Celtics. There's a gazillion people that would die to be in your position, right? When I first got the job, I would have picked up the towels, picked up, you know, the cups. I would have drove the van, put gas in the van, carried all 15 guys on my back. And now when we get in certain places, right, we have this sense of entitlement or, or this expectation that, you know, we are deserving of certain things. Like sometimes those things happen. I'm just using my job as an example. Sometimes those things happen to, to, to every, not every human being, but to a lot of human beings, but the good ones don't get lost in that or don't let that consume them to the point where that's, that forces them to act a certain way. Right. And so, the I'm saying is, you know, a failure, failure versus lack, like, can be really not not necessarily defined. Most people can have a better understanding of it when they could say, if you look at the totality of someone's life or their experiences, right, the summation of them, like, will really kind of give you the true valuation of 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 who they are, and and uh, and that's like really what I tried to stand on, and, and it may be. Uh, area that's a gray area that's populated on both sides, but that's kind of like what I truly believe. Yeah, I think. Oh, go ahead, Mike. Ah, uh, no, good. Yeah, I. Th that's the hard part about knowing about famous people, right? Is mm -hmm. that we don't get the whole picture. It's just it's impossible. Mm -hmm. uh, we see one great thing they did. You know, they did an awesome charity thing, and we don't hear anything about them for two more years. So they're the greatest people we know. Or they got doing something terrible. They got caught doing something terrible. It's the only thing we know, and that's the. I think it's it's sort of the problem in uh, in what we do a little bit in that we only we you know we talk about basketball players that we don't know mm -hmm. um, who do bad things and do good things, and we make these judgments based on what we see, and we just right. don't see that much. You know, that's the I think the tough part of it. Um, you got in a <laughs> speaking of like a getting having a small thing blow up into something big you you got caught on camera getting into a whole thing with marcus smart mm -hmm. just a, a loud argument with marcus smart and you know we hear about these things all the time on successful teams and unsuccessful teams what is the difference between that being something healthy that happens you know just like brothers and something that is not healthy. Like, how can you tell the difference within a team where it's something normal and it's something abnormal? Right. So in a moment, right, you see it, right? And someone may say, what the hell is going on over there, right? In the moment, regardless of where it's viewed from, right? But <clears throat> like I said, and and I keep, I hate to keep saying like in the book, but, you know, the, the, the one of the things Brad like forces us, for lack of a better way of saying it, to do as a staff 
is is to really model the right temperament in any type of dispute, right? And so, yeah, as much as I wanted to say, man, I'm not trying to hear that BS. Like, I don't know who he think he's talking to. The reality of it is my reaction in the moment, I was wrong, especially like as, as, as a black man, right? Like and me trying to model the right like posture when there's friction is important when I'm dealing with some young men that look like me, right? Mm-hmm. Whether they look like me or not, just period, right? From my position. And so, um, you know, like most people don't know when we got back in the locker room, Smart was extremely apologetic and he was upset and sad for his own be, you know, behavior. Nobody saw that, right? And, and we were actually like, it was a race to see who could apologize first. He actually beat me to it, right? And then I was like, nah, you know, I, you know, I was wrong for my reaction. Um, but, you know, like smart, my man, like he, I mean, he's unreal. Like there's nobody like him in this league. I've seen him guard five positions. I've seen him guard centers, fours, threes, twos, ones, the bus driver, security guard, like the person, Aaron Mark, that's making the popcorn, <laughs> you know, like, uh, but yeah. Lock the popcorn guy up too. That was pretty impressive. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the interesting question, and I'm not going to ask you for any specifics or anything, but broadly, there's a, you know, Simmons and Embiid, there's a um, conversation about those guys. It's like, they don't fit perfectly together and they're too young, like high drafted like star type players and there's all this talk because people love to do it like about like friction between them and stuff and I think that I personally think like that kind of stuff is a little overblown but you don't hear that as much about or at least I don't about uh Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown despite the fact that both of those guys were were high draft picks um but the you know prior to Last year, there was the, you know, Kyrie season, which, you know, notoriously, not asking you to say anything about it, but, like, didn't go as well, like, personally and stuff. And so I just want to know, like, as a coach, as a guy who's coached, been the head coach of a college team and now is an assistant coach on on successful NBA team, like, what is, like, the right, you know, are there certain personalities that just, like, aren't going to go together um, if you're their star players and you just have to, like, live with it? Or are there ways to you know, make it work in that sense? And how do you, how do you take that on yourself as a, as a coaching staff? I, I guess that's like, if you had the recipe for that, you could put it in a bottle and you <laughs> yeah. would be, you would be a gazillionaire. Um, I, I, I'll just say that, you know, from my standpoint, this is always what I try to go back to, right? And this is the truth. Like God has been patient with me at at 47. There's some things that, that, uh, that not only I'm still working through, but that he just allowed me to just waddle in, right? While he worked on me. And so with that being said, what I try to do is extend that same amount of patience and I'm not God, but I try to extend patience to guys who I might, who we might not, I might not see where they're at, right? So I just try to like preach the, the right stuff, right? The stuff that, you know, 
I try to deliver Brad's message, right? And I try to make it about others, right? And I try to make it about the team. And, and again, we're 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 in a uh, um, nowadays it's like everything that we try to preach as a coaching staff. Um, the periphery kind of like tears it apart. Like there's everybody either working on their own brand or have their own brand. You got 20,000 fans in the arena screaming their names. They got agents, they got families, they got girlfriends, wives, they got all these other individuals kind of in their ears telling them the things that not necessarily that they want to hear, but just really their bottom line is they're focused on that particular individual. And then we get them in a setting where we're trying to take all these individuals and mold them into to, to, to one unit. Like it's extremely difficult. And so when you have the clashes of personalities or fits, guys don't fit or there's friction, I try to look at it like, what have we exhausted all the opportunities, all the resources, or all the approaches to try to get these young men to, to buy in, to, to what's going to make us the, the most successful. And, and uh, I don't know if, if that's the right way to look at it. I just try to approach it from that standpoint with the appreciation that, you know, sometimes these, these guys get on nerves, you know, and, <laughs> and, uh, and, but with that being said, if it could, if it could, if it work out, It'd be great because I do believe both those 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 two young men that you reference are are pretty special talents, and, and uh, if they you know ever get it together, it's going to be. I, I think the city of Philadelphia would be happy. What do you do when you have a guy on your team that says the Earth is flat? No, I'm just kidding. I was I leave that. <laughs> yeah, I, was about, I, was, I was about to say one of the things you just talked about when you, you know, when you said. Uh, you know, you see guys uh, in, in one setting, right? Yes, 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 yes. Yep. We we might not know the entire story. And, and I know, you know, Kyrie's gotten a lot of grief about for that comment and, and even some of the things that he's he said. But, you know, I had 20 kids in North Philly at the, uh, at the movie theater uh, at Broad and Oxford when Uncle Drew came out. And, mm-hmm. I mean, Kyrie's made sure that all the kids had shoes and shirts and to like, you know, took care of everything. And, and, uh, and it was, and it was nothing, you know, for him. When I say nothing, meaning like not the gesture was just like easy, but I mean, he, at his core, he's like, he's, he's, he's a genuine, he's genuinely a good, a good guy. And, and a lot of people never really get a chance to see that side of him because he's not just because he may choose not to show that. Um, but I, I know, you know, whether he said the earth was flat or not, I know how much he's done for, for, you know, for the kids. And, um, and, and I appreciate him. What's not flat is his integrity. <laughs> That's right. He has rounded. There's Brown helping his branding for a little bit. If you that. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, look, man, um, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, 
it takes a lot for us to have a member of the Celtics organization <laughs> on this podcast, especially after this year, man. After the sweep. I mean, you mm. couldn't even let us get one. You couldn't let us get one. I didn't want one. <laughs> I didn't want one. We deserved it. I mean, at, um, least, at, least, I had, at least I came on with, with, yes. with my first. Oh, no, right. you know what? Actually, that's one thing I wanted to ask you. So there's a story in the book about you wanting to go to that. So you're... 47 you're three i'm 44 you're mm-hmm. you're four years older than me and so you are old enough sort of to potentially go to the parade when the sixers won in 83 and your mom wouldn't let you go right did you get to go to the eagles parade no right uh but I, what i will tell you is marcus morris oh yeah had the game on at his house and only eagles fans were invited Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was his family and it was m- m- my wife and I and my youngest two children but I felt like I was at on Broad Street after they won it and at the parade because my oldest two children were in the streets heavy <laughs> and and they were giving me a play by play and so uh even though I wasn't there, I felt like, listen, we, I I was on the Celtics plane. Most of the time we get on the team plane, we either have regular clothes on or team issued stuff. But the, every road trip we had leading up to the Super Bowl, that's all I wore was Eagles gear on the plane. <laughs> Reggie White jerseys, Mitchell and Ness starter, satin jackets, Eagles hoodies, Eagles scullies, every road trip, every road trip. So. Uh, well, we are. I'm. Uh, I'm proud of you, man. And uh, Philly's Thank proud of you, even though you. you sold out, went to the Celtics. Uh, <laughs> and the uh, the the book is the book is really good. It's called When the Alphabet Comes. Uh, you can get it at um, whenthealphabetcomes.com. It just came out, right? Like yeah, it's on week, Amazon, like, Barnes and Nobles. Yep. yep. Bookshop, Book Baby. Yep. Mm-hmm. You're an author, NBA player, NBA coach, Ivy League graduate. It's pretty cool, man. Yeah, I, I, I can't even can't can't believe it myself. Can't believe um, it myself. I, well, and like Mike said, the offer to we only need 20 minutes a game. That's um, it. 20 minutes. 20 good so, minutes. Run that pick and roll. Yeah. Once there's fans in the stands, they'll they'll gasp at just seeing a pick crazy. and roll it'd be crazy yeah. unbelievable never seen it before I, I, I would I'd take a 10 day if, if, if alright All right. there we go All right. we know some folks uh, thank yeah. you man uh, thank you thank, thank you, you guys I appreciate it thank you Thanks to Jerome, uh, generous with his time. As we mentioned, uh, whenthealphabet.com, whenthealphabetcomes.com, or uh, just go to Amazon, just Google it. It's out there. Great book. Um, Thanks to Jerome. We'll be back on Saturday for a lighter, more ridiculous podcast where we talk about the CNBC article that Scott O'Neill leaked. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Just more normal. And we'll talk about enemies of the process. Uh, The 2020 list is up on the website now. I sent my... uh my blurbs to Unterberger and I was like, if any of this is, Too I can't harsh. tell where the, li- where the line is anymore. <laughs> and so I was like, you, you just gotta like, let, just cut it if it's bad. Just, if it's too far, if I'm already pretty close. Well, God so bl- just like, you know, take that stuff out and save my life and well-being if you don't mind. God bless him for giving you the Scott O'Neill one. Everyone's, yeah, it was the correct assignment. 
the Scott yeah. Wheel one, I think. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all right. We'll talk to you on Saturday. Uh, are you down with TTP? Yeah. You know Lickface. If you don't fuck with me, then I won't fuck with you. If you don't fuck with me, then I won't fuck with you. If you don't fuck with me, then I won't, I won't fuck, fuck with you. If you don't fuck with me, then I won't fuck with you. But if you fuck with me, I'm gonna fucking kill you! Thanks for playing.